So does everybody have an outline for basically part two, even though we haven't finished part one? I'm hoping to finish part one today, but there's quite a lot actually to get through of that, which is fine. We're actually about on schedule. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of pleased about that because often you put it, one of these outlines out and you try to follow it and you don't get through the material. Um, but we're doing pretty well. However, I'm going to hazard that by, um, by doing something for the first five or ten minutes, which is actually basically a response to a question that I was asked at the, uh, the uh, end of last week uh, by Darwin, who is not here this evening, so he's going to miss out, about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And I'm going to use it to, again, just just uh, use it as an illustration of some of the problems and some of the damage that's caused uh, by the secular psychology and, and uh, that approach. So I want to talk about that just a little bit. Uh, let's have a word of prayer before we start, though. Father in heaven, Lord, you made us, you made our hearts, our minds, our souls, our bodies. And we're so glad that you haven't given up on us, even though we're fallen, even though we're very, very far away from what your standards require. Yet by grace, we're accepted by you. And you have graciously bestowed upon us your word, your infallible truth. Oh, Lord, help us to revere it, stand in awe of it and its authority and its uniqueness. Help us to regard it always as sufficient, um, that you haven't left anything out, Lord, for us to live a life according to you, according to the way that you want us to live in this fallen world. Um, I pray, Lord, for any that may be on their way, that you would guide them here safely and that now you would bless our time together. I, I um, just pray that you would be exalted in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to say something, therefore, about uh, PTSD um, before we talk about the human heart. Now, I'm doing this, and I know it's kind of a, it's it, it's it's not a rabbit trail because I'm, Starting off with it, so it can't be a rabbit trail, can it? Um, it doesn't really fit into uh, the the kind of logic of where we were going, but it is a reminder. It's something I'm going to introduce here as a reminder to what I said in the first session about why we do not go with secular psychology. Uh, in that session, I did speak about the fact and quoted several authorities about the fact that uh, secular psychology is not science. It is not scientific. There is no, um, you know, they don't do blood work to figure out if you've got ADHD. They just look at you. They just, you know, read a bunch of, of uh, phenomena and suppose signs and sign you up for it. Same with bipolar, same for schizophrenia, same for a whole, you know, bunch of stuff. It's just ridiculous. Um, 
it's it's not like you know there are some um, aspects, some things like uh, you might say you know Aspergers and so on that that you can kind of quantify fairly well, you know, on a in a scientific way. But but when it comes to these so-called disorders, uh, they are not quantifiable in that way. And when it comes to the treating of them, again, very often the treatment is worse than the supposed problem. And uh, that is illustrated very much in uh, the treatment of PTSD. What event would you think would give us the best data for understanding PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder? What event of the last 25 years would help us to gather data on this? What do you think? Who said 9-11? 9-11, exactly. So, uh, in their book, One Nation Under Therapy, uh, by Christina Hoff Summers and Sally Sattel, and by the way, Christina Hoff Summers, uh, she's not a Christian as far as I know, and she's a feminist, and I'm not a big fan of feminism at all. I think feminism is, is what's been used by the devil to to bring in all the other stuff. Um, at the same time, she has a, 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 a YouTube series, a series on YouTube, excuse me. Uh, she calls herself the Factual Feminist. And if you want to hear a reasonable presentation of feminism, and she is reasonable as well as she does a lot of debunking of the more radical feminism. Uh, for example, she's written a very good book uh, called The War Against Boys. Um, she's been one of the, uh, the forefront of the, those people who are saying, you know, young white boys, particularly males, um, they are often put down, they're often made to feel bad about just being a boy and how that is affecting uh, America and how it will affect America in the future. Um, do not re- believe the rhetoric, okay? The actual um, facts and figures as far as uh, achievement of males and females that are tabulated, they're reported and so on, and more females graduate from college or even go to college than males, more females graduate, uh, higher degrees, more females, by quite a long shot in some uh, cultures. Um, that does not augur well for the future, especially when we talk about um, men and women and we talk about marriage later on, you'll see that um, just... Built into the psyche of men is this, this idea of achievement, this idea of providing, um, and protecting. And if that isn't, um, regarded by the woman, cause she's got, you know, a great career and she doesn't need him, thank you very much, and all the rest of it, then you're just heading for calamity because that will turn to anger and resentment in the husband without any you know, hardly any exceptions. It just does. Um, and leads to other problems on the other side of things. But anyway, that's, now I am going down a rabbit trail. Um, so she says on page 186 and following, and I'm, I'm going to read just a, a few selections from this, okay? In the summer of 2002, one of us, Sattel, 
who's an MD, by the way, spent two days in a hotel ballroom outside Baltimore with about 200 men and women, nurses, social workers, rescue volunteers, seeking ICISF certification in the basics of crisis counselling. She listened to lectures about traumatic stress. Much of what the instructor said was obvious, that routines should be preserved after a crisis, that too much alcohol is bad, that depriving oneself of sleep is unhealthy, and so on. The experts, scare quotes, had appropriated common sense as if it were their own special province. Then came a session on psychological debriefing, also known as critical incident stress debriefing, the centerpiece of trauma counselling. Our instructor acknowledged that debriefing had come under attack, but promptly dismissed the critics, maintaining that psychological debriefing was proven to thwart the development of PTSD. The instructor peppered us with a series of half-truths and outright misstatements. We were told, for example, that PTSD, quote, rarely goes away by itself, end quote. That there are no factors that predispose a person to develop PTSD, and that a person who, quote, hold it in, or that people who hold it in, do worse, end quote. All untrue statements. The course manual stated that debriefing compensates for, quote, the failure of the victim's usual coping strategies, end quote. Moreover, unless psychological debriefing took place soon after the crisis, a so-called trauma membrane would form around the victim and, quote, thicken so that he would no longer be receptive to help. Okay, now moving on, uh, they get... Uh, they talk about some of the details about um, 9-11. In October 2001, this is page 191-92, Sharon Khan, a senior psychologist at Coney Island Hospital, manned the phones at a televised call-in show sponsored by PBS called Reach Out to Heal. Experts described the symptoms of traumatic stress and viewers were urged to call in with questions and to get referrals for help. Ms. Khan took calls all evening. She referred two people for therapy. The vast bulk of calls were queries about the resumption of regularly scheduled programming. There were a lot of therapy experts here in New York who were quite happy to tell everyone that firefighters would have PTSD, Malachi, uh, Malachi Corrigan told the New Yorker. And it continues. And then, um, just moving down a little bit, Rachel Yehuda, director of the Traumatic Stress Studies Division at Mount Sinai, said that despite widespread media and education on treatment, the volume of new patients in the fall of 2001 was low. Quote, many people were coming to treatment, she said, but those who those were people that had already been in treatment, particularly for past PTSD and anxiety disorders, end quote. Across the country, mental health professionals braced for epic caseloads after September 11. Yet in the end, the demand for their services was modest. 
According to the New York Academy of Medicine, which conducted numerous surveys after the terrorist attacks, roughly 19% of New Yorkers said they saw a mental health professional within eight weeks after the event, but this was little more than the 17% who did so eight weeks before the attack. Quote, existing therapeutic relationships and informal sources of support were the primary mental health resources for most people within the first few months. End quote, according to Dr. Sandro Galea of the Academy. Again, further on, the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research examined a military health systems database that recorded all outpatient visits logged in, logged at military treatment facilities from September the 11th, 2001, to February 9th, 2002. Comparing this 22-week window at the same time period, to the same time period in the previous two years, revealed no increase in visits to mental health clinics. In late 2002, the Federal Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, there's a mouthful for you, released data on patterns of treatment use in New York City and surrounding areas. Seasonal effects were ruled out by comparing similar time frames from 2000. Comparing the first three quarters of 2001 to the fourth, researchers noted, quote, relatively few significant changes, end quote, including some small declines in use of mental health and drug treatment services. Researchers also noted no increase in rates of mental health disorders or of distress in either the general population or those with a history of problems. And it goes on and on for pages on this. Um, Here are these experts who after 2001, uh, you know, September 11th, they're expecting all these people with PTSD including, and she goes on to talk about firemen. They didn't have it. They didn't have it, at least not any more than you would expect. Now, let's just, just, just look at this for a second, okay? Write it up here. Post-traumatic... Uh, was it? Stress, sorry. Stress. If I can draw an S. Disorder. Okay. Question. If you've gone through a traumatic experience, would you experience some traumatic stress? Is that a disorder? Of course it's not a disorder. That's natural response. Uh, another little story from you, for you, uh, from me. So, in, uh, 1997, uh, I think it was 1997, could have been early 98, but, uh, I, uh, I was planting a church, in Napa, California, and I had a, a, a job, kind of a part-time job, as a, well, I was called an assistant manager. 
but it wasn't. I didn't know what I was doing at all. To, at this, uh, this uh, apartment complex in Fairfield, and uh, the, the manager left for a vacation and left me in charge. So one day I had these uh, two uh, African-American gentlemen who came in and they wanted to see an apartment. And so I showed them a, a, an apartment. I stayed outside while they were looking around. And then one of them said from the bathroom, they said, uh, oh, this is leaking. Okay, so I went inside and straight away they put a gun to my head and asked, told me to get, not asked me, told me to get in the bathtub uh, with a gun to my head and, uh, you know, looking at the wall. So I was expecting to get shot in the back of the head. I turned round, I remember this very clearly, I turned round and looked straight at him I thought, if you're going to shoot me, you're going to shoot me looking at you. Uh, that wasn't, it's not me being brave, it was me just being a little bit numbed, completely numbed, really, actually, uh, like the world stopped, and, but also a little angry. So, anyway, that seemed to unnerve him, so uh, they bound me, they gagged me, they kind of punched me a little bit, and then they got the keys from me because they wanted to go and raid uh, another apartment who had drugs. They had dr- some of their drugs there, you see, that's what they wanted. And so for the next, it was about an hour, something like that, uh, may have been a bit longer, they would take turns and uh, watch me with, the, you know, a, a gun uh, and saying, you know, if you move, I'll pop you, and I've done it before, and I'll probably kill you at the end of this, and so on and so forth, yes? So uh, there was a, a time when they um, they both went out of the apartment, and I managed, because I was reasonably athletic at that time, I managed to get up, even though I was completely uh, um, tied, I managed to get up and kind of get out of the bathroom and headed tried to get outside, I stupidly went out the front door, or tried to get out the front door, just as one of them was coming back in. So he <laughs> he football tackled me down, which, you know, hurt. And, um, you know, it, 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 it was a bit violent, and then uh, stuffed me back in, and I thought, this is it, they're, you know, they're going to kill me. So, anyway, at the end of it, uh, one of them came back in, he had a knife, and I was expecting that he would cut my throat or something like that. He actually cut, um, he, he cut my hands free. And he said, um, he, uh, there was a conversation that happened in the middle with, with one of them. Uh, he said, you've got an English accent, where are you from? He took the, the gag out of my mouth and said, you've got an English accent, where are you from? What are you doing here? And I said, I was a pastor. You see? And uh, I said, so I'm here, God brought me over here, and so on. And so uh, we had a, a small interchange uh, there, and the same guy came back and, and released me, okay? So anyway, so they, 
they left and I was there trying to fight to get out of the, this thing. Uh, when the police came, I called the police, and when the police came, they were amazed that I was alive. And they said, this doesn't happen. Normally, they get what they want, and they just shoot you in the head, and that's it. That's the end of you. Um, so after that experience, okay, I had PTSD. Well, I would call it post-traumatic stress. Um, I didn't like to be in spaces with a bunch of people. I, I, the world was very different. And um, um, what happened is that that I, uh, at about that same time also, the Lord was very gracious. He enabled us to move from Fairfield, apartment complex just around the corner in Fairfield, to Napa. We were the 11th people on the housing list for this place, but um, the... Uh, the realtor liked Gina, my wife, of course. And so we were bumped to the head of the list, and, and I got into this house which had a backyard which was fenced. And then over the backyard was a, a school playing field. So I could come home, I could sit out in the backyard and feel protected and just look out at the trees and, you know, it took quite a long time for me to get real again, okay, to get back in touch. But I'm telling you, I did not have a disorder. I did not have a disorder, okay? These um, firemen, your son, for example, and uh, soldiers that, that see many things and awful things and experience awful things, they don't have a disorder, they have trauma. They have their senses overloaded. They have their their feelings and their um, their worldview is just you know often crushed and crumpled and stamped stamped on. Their view of human nature, their view of of whatever, is distorted, and they're trying to deal with that now and get back to reality. Do you see? Um. But psychologists call it a disorder. There's no disorder about it. They're just traumatized. So they don't need psychological counseling by people that think they're disordered. Often, and in fact this is what the survey said, often they just need friends and people that love them to be around them and to help them to get back to Reality, you see? And sometimes it takes a while to do that. It's not like on the movies. It's not like on the films, you know, where the, the, the person gets released and the next day they're fine because they've just been released. It's not like that at all. It takes time because, you know, your world just, <laughs> it closes in and it's you facing death. Um, and there's nothing you can do. You're utterly helpless. There's nothing you can do about it. Okay? You are completely at the mercy of that person uh, who's holding the gun or whatever. Do you see? Anyway. So, 
Yes, there's post-traumatic stress, but there's not post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and psychologists actually, and it's uh, they go on to talk about this, psychologists actually, they can make it worse. In fact, they say, uh, let me, uh, I think I did quote this, but let me get back to it if I can find it again. Um, that often they actually make it worse because they um, they remind people they, they they make people go through it again. You know, when I uh, they, they caught one of the guys and I had to go to court and I had to identify him and and he had very piercing green eyes. This this guy um, and, and you know I was made to recount the whole thing again. And that was very traumatic for me to do. It wasn't therapeutic. <laughs> it was traumatic. It was very difficult. Um, and so in their attempts to uh, to help these individuals, often they, they actually make it worse. And then they will make it worse still because they will label that person. And that person is now no longer the ordinary person that they were. Do you see? They're now that person who is this. And they have to deal with the label. Do you see? And that's how they think about themselves. And that worse, they know that's how other people think about them. So it does a lot of damage. It can do a great deal of damage. And as I've um, said before... Uh, every study that can be relied upon on uh, whether going to therapy is better than not going to therapy, um, it's even. Even, In fact, sometimes uh, going to therapy is uh, more damaging than just being with family and friends and, not, and just you know, going through it yourself, getting back to normal yourself. So I say that, A, because I was asked the question, but, but B, also, again, it shows you that, that when you can catalogue this stuff, um, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's the whole thing is pointless, quite honestly. You're almost certainly going to get misdiagnosed, and you're almost certainly going to be put on medication as well. Well... Yes. Yes. And as you can uh, see on our outline, in uh, part two, number five, we're going to deal a bit with psychotropic drugs. Okay, which is one of those things that often is not dealt with, but I'm going to rely on a bunch of experts and talk about psychotropic drugs, um, psychiatric drugs and so on, Paxil and Zoloft and the rest of it, and talk about Ritalin, how damaging this stuff is. Okay, if you've got a kid on Ritalin, get him off. Okay, this is bad stuff. Bad stuff. All right. So, I wish I could segue into dealing with the human heart, <laughs> but it's not an easy segue into it. Although, um, we are dealing when we're dealing with counselling people, we're always dealing with the heart. So let us um, 
remind ourselves of what the scriptural teaching is on the heart, shall we? By the way, one of the things um, when we, we talk about uh, psychiatric drugs and so on, one of the things that that um, needs to be stressed is that if somebody's on them, they are not just to come off them. They are not just to come off them, okay? These these things are basically in the same, according to Dr. Peter Bregan, a psychiatrist, these are basically in the same category as methamphetamines, okay? Ritalin, for example. So you don't just come off cold turkey. That can be very dangerous. <clears throat> all right. We all know Jeremiah 17.9. Oh, by the way, I, I should... I should pause, shouldn't I, and ask if there's any questions or anything on, on that little portion of things. Yes. Bregan, yeah. Yes. Yeah, and we'll, I'll bring him up later, but thank you for doing that. That's good. Yeah, go sort, go and find these sources yourself, because I, you know, best to check me out too. Um, <clears throat> Okay, Jeremiah 17.9, here's kind of the classic passage on the heart. It's very straightforward. The heart is deceitful. The heart is deceitful. What does it mean to be deceitful? It means that it is going to if you listen to it, it is going to misdirect you. It is going to deceive you. It is going to lie to you. It is going to tell you half-truths. It is going to uh, present reality to you in a distorted way. All right. So we need to be on our guard for uh, for the heart. But we really need to be on our guard because of what it says next. The heart is deceitful above all things. Above all things. We don't think about that. We think about people that are deceitful. We think about, you know, schemes that may be deceitful and so on. We, you know, um, um, con, cons and uh, the long con and things like that where where there's thought gone into how do we deceive someone? How do we draw them in? How do we get the information that we want out of them and so on, yes? But the heart, your heart, my heart, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Not just wicked. Not just wicked. Desperately wicked. And you've got one and I've got one. We're not talking here, of course, about the actual organ. We're talking about the heart being the the mission control center of the person, okay? And as I've said before, that uh, in both Hebrew and Greek, the idea of heart has to do with uh, also the way you think. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he, okay? So left to ourselves, listening to ourselves, that's what I'm referring to, desperately wicked, desperately wicked, Who can know it? Well, that's an easy question to ask. You can't, I can't. 
Only God can. So we need to listen to God. And how do we listen to God? Thank you, the Bible. There we go. Thank you, Robert. We listen to the Bible. We don't listen to supposed voices that we're hearing. God told me. We don't listen to, um, you know, kind of shut our minds off and try to get God to speak to us or communicate with us somehow. It's not channeling, okay? It's listening or heeding the word. Genesis 8.21, this is uh, God's basic summation of the character of the human race at the time of the flood. Uh, You all know this, but um, it, it bears looking at and just listening to again. It says that the Lord here, <clears throat> excuse me, smell, uh, sorry, smelled a soothing aroma. This is after the, the flood, and this is Noah uh, offering the sacrifice. And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, I could have gone to, of course, the earlier passage uh, where God speaks about judgment in chapter 6, okay? That God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all the flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth and all of the rest of it, yes? But I didn't go there because you might think, well, that's before the flood. So I thought I'd go after the flood when all those wicked people are wiped out. And this is God looking forward. And what he says is, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. You are born in sin. That's the important doctrine of original sin that I'll say more about. But you are born a sinner. Choose to be, but you are. And... Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. It's because he's he's a sinner. And so the imagination of that heart, which is a wicked heart, a deceitful heart, the imagination of that heart is evil continually, God says. Your heart, my heart, Judges, chapter 18. Just turn to these passages with me. Judges, chapter 18, verse 20. This has to do with the the priest who... It was, he, he was a Levite and Micah, this, this, uh, kind of rich guy, got this Levite to come into his house and with uh, idols in it and be his priest. Okay. And then the tribe of Dan came through and they saw, they were at Micah's house and long story short, they saw this Levite there and, uh, they nabbed him and he became their priest in, uh, in Dan, 
after they they killed all the people in that town and, and renamed it Dan. And basically, it says there that they were they were there with a carved image in Dan all the time uh, that Israel was in the land. Look what it says in verse twenty. Once um, the uh, the tribe of Dan wanted him to become their priest. So the priest's heart was glad and he took the ephod and the household idols and the carved image and took his place among the people. Among the people of Dan. He was glad. But you know who this guy was? His name's Jonathan. And he is the great I think the great-great-grandson of Aaron. The heart is wicked. You see, his heart told him, hey, promotion. It's okay that I'm a Levite and and Levites are supposed to be at a certain place at the tabernacle worshipping God only. I'll take these idols and I'll go with these people to another place and I'll be there Priest, you see? Pragmatism, also getting involved there. Pragmatism is one of the great uh, deceits of the human heart, you know, where where we say, oh, well, this will work. You know, let's do what works. That's a real shortcut that the heart can take, you know, to get its, its things done, you know. Now, is it right? But does it work? Second Samuel chapter 24 verse 20, verse 10, sorry. Second Samuel 24 verse 10. These are uh, examples that I picked out, uh, cause they illustrate different, different things. This talks about David's heart. David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So David's heart was was lifted up and he numbered the people. Didn't rely on God, he was wanted to count his armies. How powerful am I? My strength is in my armies, in my might. Do you see? Defection from God there. And then his heart smote him, his heart condemned him. Now, what's instructive about this is that David is a good man. He's a man after God's own heart, of course. He's a good man, but he's a bad man. He is a good man in the, in the, the sense that he, he meditates on God's word. He fears God. He loves God. He delights in, in the, the law of God. I mean, he's... There's him, there's Hezekiah, and there's Josiah, who are basically God-fearing kings in in Israel. That's about it. You know, Asa's pretty good, Solomon's good for a while, and that's about it. Uh, But David sometimes listened to his heart. He listened to his heart in the case with Bathsheba, of course. He listened to his heart in the pragmatism of killing uh, Uriah the Hittite 
And he listened to his heart here in numbering the people. But because he was a God-fearing man, because his heart and his head were full of the scriptures, something happened. There was a, a, a countermeasure that came in. He sinned, but there was some counter to it that made him repent. Do you see? His heart smote him. I like the King James translation there. Yes? Um, his heart rebuked him for that. And then he prayed to God for repentance. That is what we're after. That's what we're after. It doesn't deal with the human heart as sinful, does it? Because David sinned before uh, he did, you know, he repented, obviously. But what it does do is it shows us that we need to get into such a place where a heart does that. Because a heart that does that is a heart that is not going to be tempted half as much as it would be if we didn't fear God. Do you see? We'll say much more about this uh, moving forward. Uh, again, on this this idea of of uh, informing the heart, Psalm 119, verse 36 and then verse 112. Verse 36 says, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. The last of the Decalogue is, you shall not covet. Why do you think that's the last one? It's the last one because it basically sums up the other nine. Um, If you covet things, you make an idol of them. You see, if you covet things, then you lust after them. You will lie and defraud because of it, do you see? So the the other ones, you know, um, that don't make any idols uh, and honor your father and mother and all that stuff. You remember the the rich young ruler in Mark ten, and he says, "All these have I kept from my youth." And what did Jesus get him on? Covetousness, didn't he? Covetousness, because that's internal. These other things you can kind of obey externally. Yeah, they're a form of, of religious, of religion, a form of godliness. But covetousness is, is internal. And so David here understands this. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Let me treasure them. Turn it away from covetousness. And verse 112 also is, is worthy in this regard. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever to the very end. I have inclined my heart to do it, to perform it. Not just, I, 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 I like the sound of it. Not just to say, um, you know, it makes me feel spiritual that I read the Bible. But he's reading the Bible in order to obey it. Do you see that? The heart and the actions have got to be engaged together. 
They've got to go together. So Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that you are to, to use your members. Oh, don't use, I'll, I'll actually quote it instead of, of paraphrasing it. Don't use your members for unrighteousness. Okay? But for righteousness. Don't use them as slaves to sin. So what David is doing in that context there is that he is saying, look, my body has been given to me by God as part of the worship of God. That being the case, I need to to tell myself, I need to will to use my body for God. And that is informing the heart, isn't it? So when the heart lusts, You've already got that covenant, in a sense, that's been uh, made with himself not to use his members for unrighteousness. I have inclined my heart because I have um, promised to serve God with my body, do you see? The same with, thing with Job, you know, I've made a covenant with my eyes, why then should I look upon a maid? Because he's made a covenant with his eyes his members, that informs his heart. Why then would I start following a a young woman around with my eyes, do you see? So that's kind of the same idea there. Proverbs, chapter 28, verses 25 and 26. He who is of a proud heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. All right. Verse 25 speaks about a proud heart. Verse 26 says that if you trust in your heart, you're a fool. Everyone who is have a proud heart trusts in their heart. Why? If they trusted in God... They would humble themselves, would they not? Why are they proud? A wicked heart. But look at these two verses. Compare them. Why are they proud? Because he is trusting in his heart, do you see? Because the heart will make you proud. Do you see? It will also deceive you that you're not really proud. Won't it? Won't it do that? Because it's deceitful. So you'll find that many proud proud people don't think they're proud. Do you see? They don't think they're proud. And yet they'll talk about themselves all the cotton-picking time. Although I shouldn't say that, should I? All the time, they will talk about themselves all the, all the time. Won't they? Because there's something behind that. Do you see? We need to be careful. Whoever trusts in his heart is a fool. And yet, what does Hollywood tell you? Especially in the kids' movies. Yeah. Follow your heart. What does your heart say to you, young Jedi? You know? <laughs> um, 
Because once you know what your heart says to you, then do the opposite. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Proverbs 27 verse 19, as in water face reflects face, so a man's heart reveals the man. So we don't need, we don't want to do superficial counseling. We need to find out enough about that person, enough about the the uh, uh, idols in the heart. We need to find out enough about where their treasures are, because Jesus says, where your treasure will is, that's where your heart will be also. So we need to find out something about what they value most, what their heart goes after. So you need to listen and ask the right questions. Because that reveals the person. Okay? And by the way, um, we're not psychologizing a person when we're doing that. Because we've all got deceitful hearts. We're just trying to help another sinner. And what's good for them is good for us. So we're not trying to be some kind of dispassionate expert here. We're, we're in this war too. Uh, let's go to, uh, I've, I've got some other passages here in, in Mark where Jesus talks about what comes out of the heart. <laughs> and you can go there and these passages in uh, in. Uh, Matthew and so on. But let's look at this passage in, in 1 Samuel 12, 24. 1 Samuel 12, 24. <clears throat> Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. Fear the Lord. Serve him in truth with all your heart. How is the heart to be inclined according to these words of Samuel? What what two things are regulating the heart here? The fear of God and the service of what? Truth. 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 It used to be said that the truth hurts. You don't hear that anymore. <laughs> but the truth does hurt. Well, that's, that's kind of a hard thing because God's truth. So coming into contact with God is often a painful thing for us. But it's a necessarily painful thing because it's good for the heart and it it teaches us the fear of the Lord which will stop us, hopefully, it will at least slow us down from our willfulness and our sin. We know this to be the case, don't we? Okay? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. And then Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 and 35. Let's just go there. Matthew chapter 12. Verse 
verse 34 says this. Brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. And he talks about the day of judgment. Um, let's look at this. Let's look at this. Um, brood of vipers. Who's, who's calling names here? Jesus. Second person of the Godhead. Okay? King of heaven. Will be king of the universe. King of this earth that we live on. Brood of vipers. He's not just name calling. This isn't hyperbole. This is him identifying, not name calling. How can you being evil Speak good things. Hey, there's a, there's a revelation because we think, we think that we can speak good things even when we've got evil motives. And there are people in the Bible that do that too. But God sees behind that, do you see? God judges the motives. And he says, you can't. Yeah, I mean, the words might come out of your mouth. But you can't speak good things. Because that speaking of good things, you are using for what? Evil ends. Do you see? Evil ends. And so he talks about the good man and the treasure of the the good man's heart. That's the person who fears God. That's a person who stands in awe of the word, who understands the sufficiency of the word. That's a person who puts God before man. That's a person who puts himself at least third in the queue of important people. An evil man brings out only evil because he's got evil treasure. Okay? And then verse 26 I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Folks, evil people can speak good words. Evil people can speak good words. But they're going to be judged for those words as if they were evil because they are evil. Do you see? Because they're using them deceitfully for wicked ends. For by your words you will be justified. By your words you will be condemned. Not just the sound of them, but from where they came. Okay, The heart that brought them forward. So what Jesus is doing here is that he is saying, uh, you better watch out. You better fear God because at the end of your life, all this stuff that you think you've got away with, that people can't, they can't see behind you and you've been deceiving them and you've been flattering them and you've been doing this and that. 
But God sees behind it all. And you'll give an account. Folks, I'm glad my sins are covered. That's all I can say, okay? I'm glad my sins are covered by the blood of Christ. Don't ever um, take for granted the cross. Don't ever take God's grace for granted. It covers a great deal of iniquity. Um, having look at, looked at what the scripture says, down the, the, the next best thing, and it's quite a way down from, of course, the scripture, but the next best thing is to go to the Puritans. Um, so I'm going to, to quote a few Puritans for you and just let these things um, sink down, just listen to them, okay? I'm going to quote some John Owen to you. John Owen, this is one of his books here, this is his biblical theology. There are in all, uh, I think, 23 volumes of his works. I have them. I haven't read them all. Okay, but I've read I've read this, and I've read a good many of his of his books, and um, in his works, especially um, volume six and seven, and or volume eight too, these are the are the books. They're all about six hundred pages long, and they deal with the human heart. They deal with analyzing the human heart. There's nobody like John Owen. Um, to do this. <clears throat> and so, um, let's see, I, I don't want to take up too much time here, but I, I love some of these quotes. Listen to this. This is from his book on indwelling sin. You might want to write this down. Grace changeth the nature of man. But nothing can change the nature of sin. Grace changeth or changes the nature of man, but nothing can change the nature of sin. And he continues, The man that understands the evil of his own heart, how vile it is, is the only useful, fruitful, and solid, believing, and obedient person. <laughs> you don't hear that from the pulpit anymore. You're not allowed to say that anymore from the pulpits. Okay? We have to be affirming all the time. But he's saying, you are not worth anything if you don't know your own heart as a Christian, if you don't understand how vile you are. People get upset with me and I kind of somewhat understand it, you know, but I, I call people, I say we're dirt bags. I say we're dirt bags. I'm a dirt bag. Okay? And so are you. And I'm sorry if that offends you, but it shouldn't offend you. Because your heart is vile and so is mine. And you are what you are based on the goodness of Christ that has been imputed to you. And it's by grace you stand, not by anything else. You yourself, 
are no good. Paul says, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. You can change, grace changes a man, but it, nothing can change the nature of sin. And we still have sin that we have to deal with. And so when we are counseling somebody, we are, we are trying to deal with the heart. We're trying to deal with sin. We need to be knowledgeable about the deceitfulness of their own heart. Their, li- their heart's lying to them. Now maybe they come to us, uh, half prepared because the Holy Spirit has convicted them. Maybe they've been a bit like David and their heart has smote them. And, you know, they want to make reparation and they don't know how to do it. They need help in that way. That's fantastic when you get that. Because God's done a lot of the work for you, you see? But sometimes they don't see. But, hey, there's no surprise there because half the time, should I say half the time, I'm being nice to myself. I don't see either. A little later on, um, give you one more quotation here. Oh, here we are. He says this in his book on the mortification of sin. That's putting sin to death. Quote, when sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. But as sin is never less quiet than when it seems most quiet... And its waters are for the most part deep when they are still, so ought our contrivances against it to be vigorous at all times. I know we don't talk like that anymore. So I'll give it you again, okay? But it's, it's wonderful, it's analytical. It's, it's true biblical preaching. When sin lets us alone, that is when sin leaves you alone, then you can leave it alone. But as sin is never less quiet than when it seems most quiet. What he's, what he's saying is, is sin is at its worst and its most dangerous when you think you're beating it. Okay? And its waters are for the most part deep when they are still. So ought our contrivances, our our thinking, our working, our our striving against it, be vigorous at all times. And so he prescribes Rise mightily against the first actings of your distemper. That is of what's going on in your heart. Its first conceptions. Suffer it not to get the least ground. Okay? Mortal enemy. You see the battle talk here? He's trying to get us to understand our hearts. Okay. Is that enough Puritans for you? No, thank you. <laughs> I didn't think it would be. So here's Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, his book, The Evil of Evils. 
And this is a great book. If you want to start with a Puritan, uh, John Owen is not the one to start with, okay? Um, I think I said, I said on, when was it? Wednesday, I think, because I quoted from this one. And I said to uh, the, the Bible study group that this is a translation from his Latin manuscript into English, and the translation of his Latin into English reads better than his English prose when he's writing in English. So he's kind of hard to, to, to deal with, but he's worth it. But here's Jeremiah Burroughs. He's one of the, the easiest Puritans to read. Him and Thomas Watson, uh, Richard Sibbs, uh, people like that. But, but he gives us nine consequences here of... Um, of choosing to sin and, and dealing with sin. Okay, and I, I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna read a little bit from each one. The first consequence is simple. If there is no good in sin, then certainly sin is not the work of God. That's a straightforward one, isn't it? If there is no good in sin, then it's not of God. That's just kind of put there, put out there for you because we need the lines drawn, don't we? Second, secondly, if this is so, then whatever promises sin makes to anyone, they are all but delusions. Straightforward, yes? And he says, certainly if sin promises any good, it deludes you and your seduced heart deceives you and you are feeding on ashes and there is no, for there is no good in sin. Third consequence, hence it follows that no sin can be the object of the will of a rational creature. That's a, you know, maybe having a little bit of trouble with that one. But it's, it's actually, it's great, it's making you think, I hope. It follows, if it's going to deceive you, no sin can be the object of the will of a person thinking rationally. Because the true object of the will, for it to close with, that is to, to focus on, is good. We should be concerned with what is good, and what is good is always what is true. Okay? What is good is always what is true. Truth comes from God, good comes from God, therefore... Um, truth and goodness go together. <clears throat> so it's unreasonable. It is unreasonable. But you see, you can use your rational faculties, can't you, that God's given you because of sin, you can use them to scheme and to plot and to excuse yourself. Fourth consequence, since it follows that nothing that is good should be ventured for sin. Nothing that is good, uh, you shouldn't do anything that you know is good in order to, to sin, get something that's sinful. So watch your motives. The fifth, it follows then that if there is no good at all in sin, then we ought to make nothing that is good to be in any way serviceable to our sin. Well, that's slightly different, but it's it's just saying that God's given a lot of good things out there. A lot of good things. But we can use them for evil. 
Yeah? There's nothing, uh, there's nothing wrong with food. I'll make it personal. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with food, but there is something wrong with gluttony. Yes? There's nothing wrong with, with alcohol, but there's certainly something wrong with drunkenness. There's nothing wrong with sex, but there's certainly something wrong with fornication and adultery. There's nothing wrong with fitness and health, but there's certainly something wrong with worshipping your own body. Narcissism, do you see? So, that's what he's talking about there. I won't give you all of them, but seventh consequence, hence it follows that all the time we spend in a sinful state is lost time. I love that. All the time we spend in a sinful state is lost time. And he continues, Oh, look to this, you young ones. All the time you spend in the vanity of your youth is all lost time. And you who have lived until you are old and have been a long time in a sinful state, you have lost all your time. That's great. I don't preach like that, but I wish I could. Eighth consequence. If sin has no good in it, then all wicked men who live in the ways of sin are useless members of the world. Hey, that's countercultural. Do you see? That's countercultural. Because they think you're useless. They think Christianity's useless. But if God is there, God is the creator, God is the judge, then they're the useless ones. They are burdens upon the earth, unprofitable members who go on in the ways of sin, who neither have nor can have any good. Lastly, if sin has no good at all in it, then when there is a temptation to sin, there does not need to be any deliberation about it as to whether or not it should be admitted. If once you know it to be a sin, you need not reason the condition of admission or not, or what will follow. You immediately reject it without deliberation. In other words, don't start thinking about whether you should or shouldn't. Just get rid of it. Get rid of the thought. Finally, Page 23, I beseech you to observe this. Take heed forever of reasoning with temptation or consulting and casting about in your thoughts questions like, what will become of it? What trouble may come by this if I do not hearken to it? Take heed of reasoning. If the devil can but get you to reason about it, he has got it half granted already. You need not reason with any temptation. Cast it off immediately because sin has no good in it. First one. Oh, that God would convince all our hearts of these things. So we're dealing, when we're dealing with counseling, we're dealing with the human heart. We're dealing with our human hearts too. So when we are counseling somebody, we have... Got to remember the state of our own hearts too. 
Okay, We've got to depend on God. We've got to rely on him. We've got to be prayerfully asking him to help us to see what's the matter with this person. Are they, are they deceiving us? Are they, is there something that I need to pick up on? Lord, you know, I, you need to tell me this, okay? Because they might start saying things and might start making you feel good about yourself. And then you, you're useless then, okay? Because, because you're no longer listening, you see? They've, they've just got you in their hand, haven't they? Got to be careful of that. All right, any questions on the human heart? Yes. Yeah, I mean, obviously, because these are individual quotations, it does sometimes seem that, and, and Paul also speaks of sin as as action, you see. Um, temptation here, when it's being spoken of, is something that's coming from the outside, okay? But sin is is uh, relating to it, wanting to connect with it. Um, that's just, this is just ways of, of speaking about sin. Uh, we have to understand, as, as Jesus says in Mark 7, 21, you know, he, he speaks about out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, uh, witchcraft, murders, and all the rest of it, <laughs> do you see? It's out of our own hearts. And yet our hearts present us with these things. All right? They even, they even present us, they're, they're kind of, you, you might think of the human heart as, as an ambassador for temptation. Temptation comes from the outside. Our heart grabs it, looks at it, and then presents it to us. Oh, this is such and such. And look how, you know, what a good time you can have if you just go hand in hand with this sin or this temptation. You see, so our, heart, our own hearts get involved with corrupting us in that way. Yes. Yes. No, it's us. Yeah, the question is, uh, if we've got a sinful nature, can we do anything else but sin? And um, the answer is yes and no, of course. For an, for an unsafe person, the answer is really no. I mean, they can choose to do good and kind things that we would call good and kind. Um, but God doesn't accept them as, as righteous. He doesn't accept them as done unto him, do you see? So therefore he doesn't call them good because they don't recognize the source of good. So um, in Proverbs it says the plowing of the wicked is sin. How can the plowing of the wicked be sin? Well, he's just plowing a furrow, isn't he? Well, yeah, but... But who gave him the ability to plow? Who, whose ground is it? Who's going to bring forth the, the uh, seed and so on? Who's going to bring the rain and the sunshine? Do you see? That's why the plowing of the wicked is sin. No gratitude to God. Um, but as far as a Christian is concerned, a Christian is not a slave to sin. Romans chapter 6. 
not a slave to sin. And so Paul says, therefore, you're not to be a slave to sin. Do not use your members to sin. Reckon yourself dead to sin. All right? And therefore, we can choose to not sin. We can choose to serve God. Is that choice easy? Well, depends, doesn't it? Sometimes, you know, if, if somebody offers me a, uh, a cream puff, alright, with fresh cream on it, okay, it can have as much chocolate as, it, as you want on it. I'm not gonna eat it, cause I can't stand cream, fresh cream, okay? Uh, if somebody says to me, you know, do you want a, uh, a, a steak burrito? You know, right away, you know, inside, I'm already tasting it. Okay? And then they, I, I look at it and they've got, they've got, um, sour cream all over it. It's like, take it away. Okay? I, I don't have to deliberate about that. It's not a temptation anymore. But then, then there are other things that, that are tempting to me, but I can, you know, it's not, I can make a decision not to do it. Yeah? Pound cake. Okay? Yeah, I like, I want some pound cake, but I can say no to it. Right? Milk chocolate. I can often say no to that. I'm, I'm the dark stuff guy. So, um, but then there are other things that I really have to strive, you know, John Owen stuff. I'm at war. I have to realize I'm at war. That's the only way I'm going to beat this thing. I have to strive. And I can will, do you see? You, remember I've already said that you can will against your character. Okay? All counseling is based on that. You can will. God says don't do it. Well, don't do it then. You're responsible for not doing it. You can say no. It might be hard, but you can. Yeah? The good question. Okay, any other questions? Just a comment, but I like what Jeremiah Burroughs said. Don't even entertain it. It's, yeah. Yes. In fact, go to Proverbs chapter 4, and I'll show you this. Uh, he's... Uh, Basically, just taking up what uh, Solomon says <clears throat> in diff- slightly different context, but the same thing, 4, 14, and 15. Okay, Proverbs 4, 14, and 15. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it, turn away from it, and pass on. Do you see that? Be radical. Be radical. It's not, it's not skirt round it, you know, go around on the periphery. It's like get, go in the other direction. Take radical measures with these temptations, with these sins. All right. As you do that, by the way, you lessen the hold, and you and you and you uh, you actually, if I can anthropomorphize it, it, you you encourage your will against it. Do you see? 
I mean, it, it sometimes very difficult, but you actually strengthen your will. You've done it. You've said no. And you said no a second time. And you said no a third time. And, you know, by the time you've come to the 15th time, it's not as difficult. Yeah? So, any other questions? Yeah, we we have uh, we have God's help, but when do we have God's help? Yes, <laughs> we have God's help when we obey. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His own good pleasure. Do you see that? Uh, tension there, you are responsible for working out your own salvation. You know what the next verse says? That's uh, Philippians 2.13. What does verse 14 say? Therefore, do nothing by murmuring and disputing. Well, hold on a minute. Verse 13 says, work out your own salvation. Okay, got that. Because it's God who works in you, both to will and to do of your own, of his own good pleasure. Okay, so that's God helping me to will and to actually do the action. And then, don't murmur. Don't dispute. Don't be an argumentative so-and-so. Well, that's not God working you, in you, being argumentative and murmuring, isn't it? Especially if God said, don't do it. So do you see, God is working in us when we obey him. That's the way it works. Hard lesson, that is. We have to keep learning it. Because I want God to come to where I am. I want to, you know, I don't want to be completely in the filth. Okay? I just want to be in the pig pen a little bit. Okay? I just want, and, I, and so, and then I pray, and I want God to come in the pig pen to help me. I don't want to get out of the pig pen, but I need to get out of the pit, the pen, and then God will help me. Do you see? That's the that's the deal. So yeah, you're right there, Les. Yes, exactly. We're responsible. Yes. What? Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And we're going to speak quite a lot about the devil uh, later on, yes. The devil is always... We should take the devil seriously. Um, the Puritans took the devil seriously. They, they, I have two tr- big treatises on the devil and his temptations written by Puritans in my library. And uh, they're both excellent. Uh, we in evangelicalism, we don't take the devil seriously anymore, but we need to take him seriously. He's the ruler of this world. Okay. Yes. Another thing I think um, to beware of, beware when you think that you stand, lest you fall. Yes. Because when you get a victory from sin, you need to thank God for that victory and not think, oh, I'm, I, Yes. Yes. Yeah. Let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And you know, it is, I, I don't need anyone to tell me that 
when I, I honestly can say, people can say good sermon and so on at the end of a Sunday. It doesn't, I mean, I'm gratified if I think they really mean it and they were helped by it. And praise God, that helps me and that encourages me. All right, that was, I did something useful this morning, okay? But um, I don't, that doesn't blow my ego up or anything like that. But, yeah, I can sometimes get to, um, get times when, when somebody pays me a compliment or, um, you know, maybe online somebody pays me a compliment uh, somebody from New Zealand or, you know, um, I've had several of my papers translated into different languages in Germany and, 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 uh, South America and so on and so forth. And, you know, occasionally, um, you can think, oh yeah, you know, people recognizing, well, finally. And, and the thing is, there is, there is a, with, with me, I guess because of all of the work and thought that I've put into certain things, I think there is a legitimate feeling, because I believe it's true, you see, there's a legitimate feeling that I want people to see this truth. But it's so easy for me to to also think, ah, yes, you know, finally somebody with some common sense. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody who's as wise as me has finally seen it, seen the truth. I'm not alone in seeing the truth. You see? Yeah, you're quite right. All right. Let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer, shall we? Didn't get to the sufficiency of scripture after all. Had all this, had a bunch of material to do. So that's what we'll be doing next. Well, I don't know if it's next week. I have a question for you. It's Mother's Day next week. So, what do you what do you say? Yes or no? Uh, put your hand up if it's no. Hand up if it's no. Okay, there's a bunch of no's. The no's have it. Okay. So we'll we'll take a week off, and um, if it was Father's Day, then we're just it doesn't matter. But. But yeah, so I'll see you in two weeks, okay? Don't forget.